Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. Our mission is to live the way of Jesus so we can leave the world better than we found it. If you'd like more information about our church, you can click on the link in the show notes or head to Christ-Community.com. All right, let's get started. Let me read God's word for us this morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians 5. Uh, oh, no, not Galatians 5. It, this is James 3, 13 through 18. <sighs> Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Garrett. Thank you, Christ Community, for inviting me and letting me be here and, and share the word. Or from the word today, um, Garrett mentioned already just a little bit about me. Um, but um, one thing I do want to add to that, I was born in the States. My parents immigrated from South Korea uh, in the early 70s, and I've only known the U.S. as home uh, and the D.C. area uh, prior to 1999, which is when I moved down here for, for college and to pursue a ministry calling. Um, Prior to my time at Perimeter, I had spent almost a decade at a local Korean-American church. And I don't know how many of you guys know Korean-Americans or have ever spent any time with Korean-Americans or you watch K-dramas or listen to K-pop. You know, it's almost inevitable that you've heard something by BTS by this point. Uh, So we proudly claim them as Koreans. And um, yeah, it's a big part of my own identity. And you don't have to have all that to know much about me. But if you can just understand this one little piece, I think it will be helpful, which is, you know, it's, it's an experience to grow up in a country that you love and has always been home, but yet still feel out of place. And I think to a degree as Christians, we all feel that tension, right, of we belong, but we don't belong. And sometimes that pull to, and the desire to fit in is often strong, um, and you might compromise certain things, or you might see your identity differently, and other times you, you cling to the, your true identity. And um, that right there, in a nutshell, was me, uh, and would be the case for a lot of uh, ethnic immigrants to the U.S., um, but I'm better for it, and I know all of us as a church, the more we understand that, the more we grasp that, I think the better off we are. Uh, as Garrett mentioned, I have two children. There are 12 and 8 now. Uh, we don't do this as often because my middle schooler too often is too cool for me. Uh, so she won't dare sit down. But she will, like, play with, like, her brother or with her friends. She just doesn't want to play with mom and dad anymore. And it might be because of what I'm about to tell you. So um, I don't know when the last time you played Monopoly was, but uh, there's only two reasons people play Monopoly. You guys know that, right? And the first reason is that you just want to spend time with your friends and your family, um, and you don't realize how sinister of a game it really is. The second reason is because you know how sinister of a game it really is, and you want to play your family, right, or your friends. And so my kids are obviously in the first group. They're oblivious to any sort of strategy. Uh, They're oblivious on any sort of effect that it might have, that game, 
we'll have on dinner later on that evening. Uh, I'm in the second group, and I'm incredibly competitive. I do not like to lose, let alone to like a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. Come on, right? Um, so I milk it. I crush their spirits. Uh, I told you, it's a sinister game. Right? It's something about monopoly. It's a simple game, right? You just roll the die, you move your pieces, you collect your money, you buy stuff, right? And you watch relationships crumble right before your eyes. It's a phenomenal game. And I invoke my parental right. There's a lot of parents in here. Your right to do this. You invoke your parental right to use every opportunity, even in a game, to teach them wisdom, to give them lessons, right? And oftentimes in the midst of Monopoly, it comes out this way. Are you sure you want to buy Marvin Gardens? You have $150, and Marvin Gardens costs 280 280 is more. 150 is less. By the way, organize your money, child. I don't want to be playing for two hours and you searching for the 50 or the 100. Like, dad becomes banker. I become a, a player. I become all sorts of things when we play Monopoly. That's probably why my kids don't want to play Monopoly anymore with me. But this is what good parents do. We use our opportunities in front of us to pass on wisdom to our kids. My dad did this to me. I'm sure your parents did this to you as well. Right? You could be just going about your business as a child, and then all of a sudden your parent, and my dad did this often, and the way that Korean fathers would get the attention of their Korean kids would be to say, yeah. It's like saying, hey. Right? So I heard yeah all the time. You know, and my friends surely thought that that was like my name. That's what my dad called me was yeah. And it literally just means hey. Right? Say, like, hey, stop what you're doing. I'm going to teach you something because... You're going to need to learn this when you grow up. And I don't want you to do this the wrong way and break something that's going to be really expensive. I don't want you to touch something and die. I don't want you to forget these lessons because I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to die. And as an eight-year-old, you're like, whoa, dad, come on. (laughs) Can I just go play with my friends? You want me to change the battery on the car? You want me to help you change the oil on the car? I can't do any of this stuff right? Uh, you tell me I can't do any of this stuff because I can't even hold a flashlight property for you to see inside the engine bay because I'm an eight-year-old child, right? Childhood was filled with these moments. Of course, I'm not here to talk about monopoly or parenting fails. I want to talk about wisdom. And here in the book of James or in the letter of James, uh, we see uh, a lot about wisdom. If you have read the entire letter of James, you've no doubt have seen its practical usage in the daily life of the, of the Christian, right? When you talk about Christian living, and is there a particular area or part of scripture that you can go to to find great practical Christian living wisdom? It's in the book of James, or it's in the letter of James. A lot of great stuff here. And I'm going to attempt to just pull out three lessons from this passage. There are many more lessons on wisdom throughout Scripture, even in the letter of James itself. But I want to just focus on three lessons uh, from verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 3. So the first lesson is this. It is wisdom is not limited to intellectual knowledge. Right? It's, it's often uh, the case when we think of wisdom as just being smart. Right? It's not just intellectual knowledge. Look at what the passage says here in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you, James asked. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So when James asked the question, who is wise, who is understanding? Right? It doesn't say those who have studied the most, 
those who know the most, who have memorized the most. What does he say? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is not limited to intellectual knowledge. Rather, it is a lesson that where we are to look to Christ, think upon the cross, and it shows itself in our actions. Wisdom is not just knowing what to do, but actually doing something with that knowledge. And I liken it to this. So I grew up, um, again, son of Korean immigrants. One of the things that our family did growing up was uh, we owned small businesses. One of those small businesses was a carryout shop, like a corner bodega type shop in the D.C. area. Uh, that's what I grew up with. I grew up in the back, literally I grew up in the back room with all the styrofoam cups and the, the trays and everything, stocking things and sweeping things and all that stuff. So I got to get a front row seat um, behind the counter look at you know, how the, the, the life of a, a small business and especially a small restaurant. Right? I would see my mom and dad tediously take inventory of what we had constantly to make sure we were able to provide the menu items that, uh, that our customers always liked. Right? So I learned to cook, and I enjoy the challenge, really I do, of, of figuring out what we're going to eat as a family. And my wife has no problems with this, by the way. Right? Um, and I have no problem. And my wife's not here. I'm not going to disparage her. Um, I don't mind cooking because I do like things other than cereal and toast and salad. Uh, so I will gladly take inventory of what we have in the pantry and figure out something. But intellectual knowledge is like just going to the pantry saying, hmm, what should we eat for dinner? Can of beans. We'll just eat can of beans, right? That's knowledge. What do I have? Here it is in front of you. Enjoy. Bon appetit. Wisdom would be to say, oh, I've got a can of beans, well, what do I have in the fridge? I've got some of these ingredients here. I can take some of the things from the pantry. I can take some of our fresh produce. I can take some of these other things and whip it together that it's not just a can of beans on my plate, but it's rather a full meal. That's what I'm getting at in regards to the difference between just intellectual, intellectual knowledge and biblical wisdom. It's the conduct is what James is saying. By his good conduct, let him show works in the meekness of wisdom. James says this earlier in the letter in verse uh, 22 of verse one, or verse 22 of chapter one, be doers of the word, not hearers only, right? Deceiving yourselves. Do the work. Don't just listen to it. Don't just store it away, take inventory of it, but apply it, apply it. Why would James characterize wisdom then with meekness, you think? Well, what is meekness, and what's, uh, why make that differentiation? Well, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, you see these arguments coming together, making a, a cohesive argument. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8. He warns that knowledge can puff up. It can inflate us, make us arrogant, right? And I'm sure you've never met anyone like that, right? Someone who's got a, a wealth of knowledge, incredibly brilliant person that's not arrogant, Maybe not so. Instead, Paul is calling us toward Christ-likeness, toward Christ-like love as you express wisdom, as you live out wisdom. So what he's saying is, be like Christ. Because guess what? And throughout Scripture, you see this over and over again. I'll allude to it, and I'll get to it at the very end. But Christ is wisdom personified. What was Christ like? He was meek. His own words from 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, is that he was gentle and lowly in heart, 
right? You probably know this verse. It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for it is easy. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So why would we not consider meekness for our own lives when Christ himself says, this is who I am. This is how I am. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this. The Greek word translated gentle, it means meek. It means humble. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. And this is like a, um, almost as if he had a glimpse into my parenting, right? Harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most, Christ is the most understanding person in the universe. And I love this. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. This is Christ. This is wisdom. So gospel wisdom is not simply intellectual knowledge. It also equates to behavioral conduct, the putting into action of our knowledge because of Christ-like love, through gentleness, with meekness and humility. Now, let me be very, very clear here. By no means am I saying if you do all the right things, that is what saves you. That is what makes you right in Christ. Absolutely not. Okay, James's whole point here is this. We've got to remember the context of this letter is a communication throughout the, the Mediterranean region to Christians in churches that have been dispersed. So if his audience is a Christian audience, a church audience, it makes sense that he doesn't spend a lot of time elaborating on gospel essentials. But what he's talking about are gospel indicatives. What are you to do because of the gospel? And what he says is, because you're saved, show it. Let the world know your faith in Christ by your actions. And so for us, church, keep in mind that our actions speak to our witness. Don't just tell the people around you what you know. Live it out. If you believe in Christ and you say that he is love, full of grace and truth, then live that way. Be love. Be gracious. Speak truth. Yes. To to nail the point home even further, R.C. Sproul, late theologian and pastor, wrote this about knowledge and wisdom. He says, knowledge is equivalent to the intellectual content of the faith. Something that I think, yes, we should all still aspire toward and grow in. And then he says, wisdom is the ability to see reality as God does, enabling people to apply knowledge in a life that pleases the creator and creates godly abundance. So that's the first lesson. Wisdom is not limited to intellectual knowledge. The second lesson is this. The opposite of wisdom isn't stupidity, but self-centeredness. So let's look at verses 14 through 16 says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Oh, sorry, went too far. Got ahead of myself. Excited about this passage. James doesn't hold any punches here. Right? He calls it out. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boastfulness, lies. That is not how you, church, are to look. But if the lesson here is 
The opposite of wisdom isn't stupidity, but self-centeredness. Well, what is a self-centered person known to do? They're jealous of other people. They have ambition, but it's often derived out of ambition for the self and the self alone. Or it's somewhere lurking underneath, you know, um, good things. It's like, I got to do this for my sake. I got to get what is mine, right? Boastfulness and lies. Why do we tell lies? Why do we boast? To make ourselves look better. To elevate ourselves. To put ourselves at the center. So I believe what James is communicating here is that the opposite of wisdom isn't to be dumb, or to be stupid is to be self-centered, to be selfish. I think these days it's hard to um, consume any sort of media and, and not be inundated with um, not just commercials, but a particular type of commercial that I'm sure all of us in this room just despise. And those are political ads. Um, we don't have like regular channel television in our home, uh, but we do have YouTube, which is now somehow worse than just like what network television used to be, right? And because of YouTube ads, I'm, I'm cheap, so I didn't buy like YouTube Plus or whatever. I don't skip the ads. I skip the moment I can, but my kids who are incredibly impressionable, sometimes if there is an ad that pops up, they'll just watch all of it, right? Because they're genuinely curious kids. That's what kids are. Right? And so in the, in the midst of a political season, right, there's bound to be some kind of ad for this candidate, against that candidate, or for that candidate, and against this candidate. Right? And they will inevitably ask me, Dad, so what's the truth here? Who, who is right? If they're saying this about this person, but then that person says this about themselves, who am I supposed to listen to? And I get it. Like That's, that's the conundrum to be in as a child or just as an individual. And so a lot of times in my attempts to be uh, intentional and dive into the lives of my kids, I'll say, that's a good question. Some people will think that this candidate is good. Other people will think that this candidate is bad. But I think we need to ask a better question. And that better question is, what is most important to God? And what does he want us to do about it? And they're like, oh, okay. So now can we watch Dude Perfect? <laughs> What I'm trying to get at is this, with the information that is often coming to us, right, we want to say, well, this is from my tribe. Garrett was talking about tribe earlier, right, in his prayer. Um, from my camp, from my people, right, from my affiliations or from my uh, allegiances, as opposed to saying, this is what is most godly and most honoring. This is what I see to be true in Scripture. And it's easy to... Um, to criticize or pinpoint the mistakes in someone else, right? Even if there are, there are elements of truth there, but we won't apply the same measure of scrutiny inwardly. Perhaps I can take it further and say we don't allow for the spirit to convict us of those things internally that we just refuse to look at deeply because we want what we want and not what is against what we want if that makes sense, outside of the spirit, of course. So the opposite of wisdom is not stupidity, but self-centeredness. James says, do not be filled with jealousy and with selfish ambition. To be living in wisdom that is from above is to be selfless, like Christ. This is gospel wisdom. 
Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, rather seek the good of your neighbor. Wow. How am I supposed to do that, God? Well, I think the answer is found, again, in Jesus, in Christ. We see this so clearly in Philippians chapter 2. But before we get to Jesus, let's look at what Paul says of how we are to be like Jesus. He says in verses three through four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your interests, but also to the interests of others. So notice that nuance that Paul includes here to the Philippians. He's not saying just let go of everything of yours, right? He doesn't say be unwise in regards to, you know, your own protection or um, your, your own growth. And, you know, don't put yourself in dangerous or uh, foolish situations. But he says also, don't just look at yourself. Look to the interests of others. There are certainly many ways that God calls us to minister to the people around us by taking care and interest in their interests. It doesn't mean that we buy into everything that they say. We certainly want to ballast ourselves with truth. And we also want to have an effective witness to the unbelieving world around us. Now that's the challenge. And you're not going to get a very clear and concise answer to that in the, in, in the midst of one point and one sermon. This is what Christian community and being connected to a church body will help you do, right? I don't know how many times I've heard over the years, I heard this on the internet, and so therefore I'm going to do this, right? And, and if anything, they, they buy into a community, not to say that there's not places and ways to do this well, but they will value a, 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 a disembodied community more than the actual body of Christ community present in their local communities, in their local cities, in their local areas. This is hard, 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 hard. I am as harmonious as a personality as I think that I am. That came off very self-centered. Um, what I'm saying is this, like, I, I hate conflict, and so a lot of times I'll just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, inside, I'm like dying and crying, right? Because I just don't want to create any conflict. Now, my wife, on the other hand, is like, there's conflict? Where? Let's go. <laughs> and if she can't find it elsewhere, then she comes to me. I'm like, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Right? There's a picture of our marriage right there. Some of you in this room undoubtedly run toward conflict because you, 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 you say this, I've got the truth. And this is like not in a boasting way. Like, I've got the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you know what? Come on. Let's go and let's shine light in those dark places. Amen. And hallelujah if that is your personality. And there are some of us in this room who would say, you know what? My neighbor, out of the stories that they have shared with me, have shared all this heartbreak and angst over their experience with Christians in the church. And I just want to show them a different side of what they think Christianity looks like. Amen and hallelujah if that is you. This is the beauty of being a part of God's body together, right? We can't say to those who are like truth advocates and truth warriors, I don't need you. We do need them. In fact, God calls us to be those people. 
And we can't say to these harmonious types or the ones who love the lost and are willing to run after them and go after the the one and leave the 99 and say, I don't need you. Absolutely not. Jesus commands us and he shows us this example himself. But we do this together as a body. And if you lean one way or the other, you balance yourself in community. Again, just to drive the point home, the opposite of Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, the opposite of wisdom isn't stupidity, but self-centeredness. Don't live self-centered lives. If we were to complete that passage in Philippians 2, right, it says not only uh, don't only look to your interests, but also the interests of others. And then he says, look to Christ. He did this himself. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He took it off and said, I am going to go. I will condescend to my people and become like them. I will become one of them, but I will live the perfect life that they can't live, and I will die the death that they can't die, and I will give my life for them that they might have life. This is wisdom personified. Again, Jesus himself saying to his disciples in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's not just a love for yourself or your people, your tribe, or your pod. Jesus commands us, go and love as Christ loved. Wisdom isn't selfless. Instead, it is or wisdom is selfless. I caught myself. That's tricky. Wisdom is selfless, not self-centered. Last lesson. Lesson number three. Wisdom looks and smells a lot like the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now let's compare that with a passage I think sounds very similar to this, and that's Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Practical wisdom for us is elementary in concept, but it takes years to experience and master. Wouldn't you agree? How many times have we heard lessons on the fruit of the Spirit or being filled in the Spirit, and then we come back the next Sunday and we're like, oh, I messed up. Wasn't filled with much this week, especially not the Spirit, if anything, at all. We're in the fall season now, and um, you think about what smells, you know, kind of like are associated with different seasons. And you can probably think, oh, maybe like a pumpkin spice latte or like cinnamon, clove, right? Those types of, of smells. For me, undoubtedly, it is, is apples. Like going to, um, to, to Trader Joe's. You got Trader Joe's in Athens, right? Yeah, there's at least one, right? I, I fortunately live like literally like less than a mile from a Trader Joe's. It's probably the best thing that has ever happened. One of the best things. I, 
qualify. One of the best things that's happened to me in my life is that Trader Joe's is in walking distance to my house. Um, and, you know, when the fall comes, everything's like pumpkin, 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 pumpkin. But there's that little section that's got like apple everything. Um, and now what they have is a Honeycrisp apple candle. And some of you are like, oh, I got to go get that. And you absolutely should. They used to have like this oil diffuser thing that was absolutely divine. Unfortunately, it is now one of those things that rests in Trader Joe's, you know, um, graveyard. I don't know what happened to it. May, I may have been the only one that had bought that thing. But I used to have this in my office. And for no joke, for two years, it was just like, it smelled divine in my office. Um, it made me really enjoy going into work. But the thing is, you probably know this because you probably have been to an apple orchard, maybe even recently. Apple orchards don't smell like those diffused things or those candles. It smells like vinegar to me. And to some, sure, that aroma might sw- smell sweet, but I would prefer one aroma over the other. But there's, it's a funny thing that how human psychology works, that we associate certain smells to certain things or people or places or times of the year. I think Paul was onto this, and he knew that this was true back in, in Roman times. In 2 Corinthians 2, um, Paul talks about followers of Christ having the aroma of Christ, which is interesting because he says, to some, it is life-giving. To others, it is the stench of death. May we, as we think about wisdom and the fruit of the Spirit, smell it and smell life that we look at this list here in James 3 and also in Galatians 5, and we're not repelled by it. To be peaceable, to be pure, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy? I don't want to be that. Let this not be true of us, church. Rather, would we long for these things? Would we long to be filled with the Spirit? I had a conversation with somebody uh, and I feel like a lot of conversations start like this uh, on social media that soured. Um, and it wasn't between this person and myself where it soured. It soured because of a, relation, a mutual relationship that we had with someone else. And this someone else popped up in the comment section of a post that my friend had made. And this friend was devastated because of what this other person, this third person, the triangle, said about his post. And I remember this friend coming to me and saying, what am I supposed to do? What should I do? Every part of me just wants to, you know, you know, just get in his face and type out a long thing on, on social media. And as we were talking, I was just kind of like, you know, mind his heart a little bit here because honestly, I didn't know what the answer was. I was just listening to him uh, as he was sharing this with me. But one thing that made it just so heartbreaking to me was how much he was broken over by a fellow brother in the Lord who would be so quick to criticize and pinpoint and accuse. And he didn't do what he should have done, which is let's together seek godly biblical wisdom. And let's reason together. And if you have issue with me, let's do that offline. We use that terminology a lot in the workplace, right? Hey, we can have this conversation offline. How many relationships can, could have been saved over the last couple of years if we had decided, hey, let's actually meet in person or have an offline discussion, not leave it for social media and everyone else to see? 
Again, look at verse 17. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. goes on and on. I want to focus on this word peaceable just real quick before we come to a close. The word peace there, if you've never heard, is the, the Greek word is irene. And uh, it's the, the Greek word that often is translated from the Hebrew word shalom. And one of the aspects about that word uh, peace is not that we're just seeking calmness. The, the biblical understanding of the word peace is to go into those places where it's actually left undone. And the way that you bring peace is by doing what is undone or what is left incomplete. So that's why like in the Old Testament, you would see like the, the Israelites, they were not at peace because their wall was left incomplete. And it wasn't until that the wall or until the temple was built that there was peace, right? A sense of wholeness. And again, this kind of drives home my earlier point of how do we accomplish this on our own outside of the body of Christ? We need others, right, together to do this work. But what does Jesus Christ say about himself? He calls himself the prince of peace. In fact, it's prophesied of him that he is the prince of peace. He says in John 14, my peace I give to you. And it's not just a, do I feel really good now because of Jesus? No, he goes in and he fixes, he restores. And sometimes in order to restore and to fix, you have to break down in order to build back up. So it's not always pleasant. It's not always comfortable. And we can't do this under our own power. Apart from Christ, we will quickly, quickly veer off because of selfishness, because of greed, and because of anger. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 30 through 31, it says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts then boast in the Lord, not in yourself, not of your intellectual knowledge, but your boasting of Christ to others that they may know Christ, that they may know life. So church, would you be a people filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Again, the best of us together, we can only manage a scant amount of earthly wisdom. Think about going to a bookstore or to a library. There's no way that your finite mind can even capture the finite number of books in that room. Together, if we went and tried to tackle that entire library or entire bookstore, we might get a good portion of it. But that's one bookstore, one library with this many people the best of us together, we can't come up with all of this earthly wisdom. Rather, go to the one who is wisdom personified, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness and our salvation, our hope for sanctification, in whom we will all be glorified. So the challenge before us is this. Pursue wisdom. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is achieved through childlike faith by the grace of God. And wisdom is a person, and his name is Jesus. As a covenant people of God, we must be different and attractive to the unbelieving world in which we live. So let's live out these lessons, among many more that we can find in Scripture, 
I ask you, would you do even what uh, the, the old popular hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, says, take my intellect and use it and every power as thou shalt choose. Whether my intellect be high or low, whatever it might be, God, would you use me, is what we're saying. And if you lack wisdom or you recognize I haven't been wise, well, do what James recommends in chapter one. If any of you lacks wisdom, James 1, 5, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Who is wisdom and what is wisdom? It is Jesus. And so we pray. And would you join me now as I pray for wisdom? God, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would fill us up with wisdom. That is you. We pray, God, that you would transform us as a people, that we would be filled with your spirit, that an unbelieving world around us would know that there's something different about us, not because of our, our animosity or hatred or vindictiveness, but rather, God, would we be known by our love, by grace, by listening in a posture of, of, of love and acceptance as is fitting according to what we believe of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know this is hard. We run into these challenges day after day. So God, would we encourage and support one another, exhorting one another through this context, this local church body. So would you grow this church here? Would you deepen their faith and their knowledge of you, but also their wisdom as it is enacted around this building, around the city of Athens, Lord, in this community, wherever, God, where it is that you may send us, fill us with your spirit, we pray, Jesus, in your matchless name, amen.